Hello and welcome to this episode of the Education Insider. I'm Jacob Hansen, CEO of PRP Group and one of your hosts. And I'm Chris Peeler, Editorial Director and your other host. In our work, everything starts with knowing your audience. Who are they? What's going on in their world? And how can your products make their lives easier? In each episode of the Education Insider, we speak directly to the administrators, educators, ed tech journalists, and other leaders in the education market to help you better understand and serve your audience. Welcome to the episode. We're glad to have you. Hello, and welcome to this latest episode of the Education Insider Podcast. I am Chris Peeler, and I am here with Jason Innes from KinderLab. Hello, Jason. Hi, Chris. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for coming on. So just to get started, tell me a little bit about KinderLab and your role there. So I am the Director of Curriculum Training and Product Management at KinderLab Robotics. KinderLab is a company whose mission is to promote STEM literacy for all, uh, and we do that through the Kibo Robot Kit, which is a coding and engineering platform for early childhood. And what we're here to talk about is finding sources of external validation for companies that might be starting out or companies like KinderLab that don't necessarily have an enormous number of staff. And to kind of give a background there, can you tell me about the origin story of Kibo a little bit because it starts with research, right? Absolutely. It does start with research. And that's a really important topic because being able to, you know, convincingly show that your product or your curriculum or your solution is going to benefit children and is going to be easy for teachers to use is so important in our market. So Kinder Lab was founded in 2013 by Dr. Marina Bears. She, Dr. Bears is a leading researcher in how young children engage with technology, how we can successfully teach children technical skills, but also importantly, how expressing themselves, solving problems and using technical tools can help support child development. So that intersection between technical skills and child development is really where Dr. Bears has done research throughout her career. She's been working in this area for more than 30 years at MIT and then at Tufts, and now actually at Boston College. So while she was at Tufts, she and her lab developed a couple of tools that children can use to kind of express themselves and explore technical skills creatively. One of them is Scratch Junior, which is an iPad-based coding tool for young children. And another is the Kibo robot, which is a hands-on, screen-free robot that children can program. She received an NSF grant based on the success of Kibo and how well it was working in the classroom. Uh, she sought an NSF grant to assist with commercializing that research. So the National Science Foundation has a program called the SBIR program, the Small Business Investment research maybe <laughs> but nicely, nicely acronymed excellent <laughs> not totally sure but that's the program that the nsf supported dr bears with to start a company to make the keyboard robot available in the real world outside of academia just to, to teachers worldwide so the keyboard's been on the market through kinder lab the company with dr bear started since 2014. so like you said our our foundation the basis of the company is really in the research that Dr. Bears did and not proof of efficacy. So I appreciate you 
kind of asking about that. And well, so what if there is a company that doesn't have its origins in the NSF and are looking for some external validation so that they can go beyond marketing pieces that say we're the greatest thing in the world so that schools and districts can look at what they're doing and say, oh, they have this gold star that makes them somebody who we would want to work with. I mean, I think we have talked before about starting with aligning with standards. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, absolutely. So being able to demonstrate efficacy has a number of different dimensions, like you said. I mean, one of them is having a strong existing research basis in academia. But if you don't have that, there's definitely a lot of work that companies can do to show districts that the company understands their needs, understands the sort of educational environment that the school is in, and sort of prove that the the technology will work. So one of the most important, like you mentioned, is standards alignment. So whatever field your sort of product addresses, of course, in our case, it's engineering, STEM, computer science. You want to make sure that you develop a curriculum that makes it easier for teachers to use your product. <laughs> That's kind of step one. But in developing that curriculum, it's important to work with the individual state or all 50 states in some cases to evaluate the standards that that state has put in place that sort of specify what children need to learn at different grade levels in that domain. So for us, there are computer science standards and currently about 35 of, of the U.S. states or maybe it's up to 40 now where the states have defined what children need to learn at each grade level. So if you can demonstrate to a, a district or to a state that your curriculum supports these learning objectives, that goes a long way toward proving or helping districts feel com confident that your product will address their needs. And for a smaller company, how much work is there to do once you have, for example, made sure that you meet Massachusetts standards? How much work is there to do to make sure that you also meet Alabama standards? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes the, the standards in place are pretty similar from state to state. Of course, the federal government has the common core standards for ELA and math, which are meant to be in kind of a baseline for all states to work from. There are no common core standards for computer science. So states that have, again, thinking from our perspective, states that have established computer science standards have done so in a little bit of a Wild West fashion where they're all, most states are working from the same sort of objectives about understanding sort of core skills, the kinds of problem solving or ways of organizing your thinking that go into computational thinking and computer science, as well as some basic um, common objectives about like internet safety and privacy and um, being a good digital citizen. So the, the underlying concepts are, are pretty common, but the individual states can sometimes have very different details. So in that case, it's a matter of doing the work for the states of creating what's called a mapping, which shows the correspondence between individual standards and the lessons in your curriculum that pertain to that standard. And in some cases, developing some additional supplemental lessons for states. 
you know, special considerations where you may not have all those part of your curriculum already. There was for computer science in 2017, there was a set of model standards released by the Computer Science Teachers Association. Our curriculum at Kinderlab is mapped to those CSTA standards, as well as to a lot of individual state standards. Those model standards became the basis for a lot of those state standards that were adopted after 2017. So that's a special situation in computer science. But if you're just getting started with a tool that teaches computer science, certainly the CSTA standards would be a place to look for most impact. And there are state level lists of approved products. And I believe that you had something to do with working with Massachusetts to come up with some of the criteria. And I'd love to hear about that. Sure. So the, in 2016, Massachusetts adopted their digital literacy and computer science standards, which were, you know, before those CSTA standards were created. So Massachusetts was an early adopter of computer science standards, which is great all the way down to kindergarten, so from K to 12. Shortly after, a few years after the adoption of the standards, Massachusetts's Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, which is the Department of Education here, you know, by a state-specific name. Because they had to give it a longer acronym, right? Right, exactly, yeah. So we, we call it DESE, D-E-S-E. Jesse wanted to make it easier for districts to teach to these new standards and implement coding programs and computer science programs. So they created a essentially a guide of curricula that are available either from vendors or from nonprofits that are aligned with the standards and can help teachers support them or teach to them. So we were part of that initial round of curricula that were submitted, that we submitted and were evaluated by DESE. And we were actually included in that first guide. It's since been updated and released. I think they're on the third edition now, and I'd be happy to, you know, provide a link for your listeners to, to see DESE's recommendations for computer science programs. But ours, that was an important way within the state of Massachusetts that we could kind of participate in the dialogue about what it is that districts need. Um, mm -hmm. How does our curriculum really support those needs specifically? And it's a good model to follow. If you are in a particular state, I would recommend, you know, as a company, get in touch with the Department of Education in your state and find out about programs like that. Because each state has its own way of kind of reviewing and approving. As if that's not enough. There are also district level lists that, that people can get on or, you know, criteria that they need to meet. Can you talk about that a little bit and yeah, your absolutely. experience with it specifically? Sure. Sure. So um, different districts are often, so every state is a little bit different in its relationship between its state level department of education and, you know, how much leeway or how much responsibility the districts have to make decisions. Massachusetts. There's actually quite a bit of flexibility at the district level about, you know, what districts should do and what curricula they'll adopt. But districts will go through, often go through what's called an RFP process, requests for proposals, where they'll outline 
needs in an area, whether it's a new robotics program or something much more general, like uh, just who can be a good supplier of school supplies, you know, pens and paper. But when it comes to something like an RFP for a robotics or coding program, often that request from the district will make reference to both state standards, but also the special implementation requirements that a school might have. Like they need to make sure that training is part of the implementation, or they need to make sure that the program can be delivered within a certain number of hours per week. So responding to those RFPs can be, again, something that a company needs to devote some time and attention to, because those are really district's ways of almost reaching out uh, to companies in the same, in a way that's in parallel with how a company's salespeople might reach out to the district. RFPs are really the districts reaching out saying, these are our needs. Can you take the time to sort of describe how your product kind of fulfills those needs? So it's a worthwhile effort. It can be time consuming, but again, if you focus on that, uh, you do, it can be a very helpful service to the districts you're trying to serve because you're basically showing how your product meets those needs. And you used one of the magic words there, time consuming. For a lot of companies that may not have a massive staff, it's always about making the most use of every available resource. And one of the resources that I think about is the group of early adopters or whatever you want to call them. How did Kinderlab make use of its early adopters and what would you recommend other companies to do to turn those early adopters into a source of external validation that shows how well a product works? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's especially a dynamic that's important in areas like computer science and coding where um, there are a population of teachers out there that consider themselves sort of techies and kind of they'll they're rooting for the success of kind of new subjects and new ways of teaching and new ways of engaging students so some of the early customers at kinder lab after we sort of started out and we got the nsf funding and we had this product that had been sort of proven within academia the next step for us really was we actually had a kickstarter where we sought funding and a lot of the people who participated in this Kickstarter. That just gave me a flashback to the like 2010s or something like, hey, fund our Kickstarter. Sorry. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, it was, a, it was a strategy that was of its time. That's for sure. But it was really successful because what it, what it did was, you know, give us right from the gate, a pool of people who we knew were passionate about teaching this way. In some cases it was parents. But in a lot of cases, it was teachers. And those were also after the Kickstarter phase. A lot of our early customers were those kinds of teachers who were really excited about what it might mean to bring like a hands, a hands-on screen-free coding experience into early childhood. They weren't necessarily movers and shakers at the district level, but they were passionate about what they were doing in their own classroom. And, and so how did you harness that and turn it into something formal that you could use to be a source of external validation for KinderLab? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's when a teacher is an early adopter or a sort of passionate advocate for your product. They 
essentially their own use of the product can become a use case or a proof of concept to that teacher's principal or to that teacher's curricular people or even to the superintendent. So when you have a successful implementation at one school, you can really think about that as almost a an unplanned pilot, as it were. You know, so if you can work with the teacher to document, for example, some of the impact, like get them to if there are standards that are assessed against, of course, you can you can use that and see whether, you know, implementing your program helped the students, you know, on the tests of your subject. For us, for something like computer science, the standards are generally not assessed yet. There's not a computer science test that kindergartners have to do at the end of the year. So instead, you can work on documenting the impact in more informal ways, but there are plenty of ways to do that, to build case studies out of your successful implementations, and then turn around and show those to decision makers at the district. So that's a path that's been really effective for us in the story of Kinderlab has been moving from those, you know, always with those early adopters kind of on our side, but kind of moving to larger implementations based on that success. And have you done anything formally called a pilot or have you just done this kind of collaboration with early adopters? We've done pilots that have been part of district implementations through, like I said, that RFP process. So often when a district runs an RFP, they'll uh, start with a more limited implementation and then sort of document that and build out in subsequent years. So we've done pilots like that with districts that have wanted to kind of implement in that way. But I think something that a, that a company who's looking to kind of build their own sort of base of proof of efficacy might work with a district and propose a pilot program or maybe work with a university in that area to implement a pilot program and have the university kind of develop the metrics and study the impact. So companies, we haven't had that particular need because like you said, our own sort of basis is so strongly in kind of peer-reviewed papers that show the efficacy of Kibo, but it's something that a company that didn't have that foundation might just propose on their own with a district on a local university. And once you have the data and all of those great quotes from teachers and students and everybody, how do you make the best use of that? Mm -hmm. Well, that, you know, is where kind of PR and, and media does come in. I mean, fun way to make great use of it is to work with a company like uh, PRP, of course. Oh, stop it, I'm blushing. <laughs> right. <laughs> and to help share the word. I mean, of course, you know, a case study that no one can read isn't doing anyone any good. So if you're trying to sort of information about the efficacy, you know, you can, of course, you can use these kind of case studies directly through, like I mentioned, trying to expand your, your impact within a district, but there are plenty of cases where districts want to hear stories about successful implementations in districts like theirs, you know, so a success within Dallas, you might be able to turn around and have another large urban district like Miami see a lot of value in the case study you're sharing because they know about the challenges that they face in Miami are similar to what Dallas faces. So having a range of case studies 
or test cases in different kinds of schools is useful. And then there are places where districts can go to look for information on kind of large scale academic studies that have been done on implementing particular programs or curricula. The governor, the U.S. government maintains a website called the What Works Clearinghouse, which districts can go to as a resource. Now, to be included in that clearinghouse, studies need to be pretty large scale. But so that's something that districts can can aim for or to a resource they can look for. And what about something like Common Sense Media? Is that a, a place that you're interested in being featured? Absolutely. Yeah. That's resources like Common Sense Media that sort of provide a an unbiased view of the impact or the usefulness or the kind of design qualities of tools like Kibo. Those are a great resource for schools as well. You know, I think there are a lot of those that are available for both consumer, like parent consumption, as well as school consumption. But a lot of, especially in really children. Well, that's actually something I'd love to to talk about a little more is yeah. how much as an ed tech company do you focus on teachers and how much do you focus on parents? Because your particular product, and I think a lot of ed tech products, are trying to appeal to both. How do you split your focus? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, one of the advantages that we have, again, in early childhood is that the principles of kind of education or a good educational tool or experience in early childhood, they really apply as much to a child's experience at home as they do at school. You know, So a resource that's good for young children is going to limit screen time, is going to be play-based, is going to encourage kind of positive social behaviors and collaboration. We want those at home as well as at school. So we almost, a secret advantage at Kinderlab is that the design and the research and the thinking about child development that went into the product itself makes it a great fit for both home and schools. But and are, there answering... specific, are there specific places where parents go to look for tools that you sought out that external validation? Yeah, there are a number of websites, kind of like Common Sense Media. There's, I'm sort of blanking on the specific <laughs> names, but I could send you, you know, a list afterwards to include on the, the podcast site. But there are organizations that sort of assess like the educational value and quality of toys for the consumer market, as well as ones that assess kind of the qualities of products for the educational market. But the piece that's really different, you know, you asked about splitting the focus. One of the biggest differences would be in the supporting materials, like the curriculum. Uh, we have different kinds of curriculum for classroom use, where we're taking into account managing groups of students, giving suggestions for how to manage like a circle time meeting at the beginning and end of the lesson, how to facilitate groups interacting with each other. And those lessons then are the ones that are aligned with the state standards. So that perspective on curriculum and what's going to work in the classroom really does require a separate focus from thinking about what kind of materials do 
parents want to support their use of the robot. So although our product is, our the core robot is the same between our home and consumer markets, those supporting materials and kinds of help that we offer to a teacher might be different from what we offer to a parent. Well, that makes sense. Well, I wanted to kind of get one last thing from you. If you were talking to a company that is trying to build up a broad and flexible base that makes it as appealing to as many districts as possible and as many states as possible, what would be your one big piece of advice that you would leave them with? I guess my I would say start with what the research two two things if I can share two things instead of one. Yes, uh, you can you can warp my question to share two. Right. <laughs> right, but they both are about understanding the marketplace, you know, as a first step. So I would say, you know, whatever your domain is, take the time to read um, the standards and sort of educational mission of the different states in your in your curricular area. So if that's computer science, take a look at all those different computer science standards that are out there so that before you even begin, you know you're designing both product and curriculum and materials that are going to meet the needs that are out there rather than thinking, this is the product I've got, this is what it does, take it or leave it. And then the other thing that's related to that is just Think about, learn kind of what works from a general educational standpoint for your target age range. So that's, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning, so much of what makes Kibo special is that it was designed with an eye toward what we know about child development in that four to seven year old age range. So when you start with how children need to learn independent of your subject matter, that's going to make teaching the subject matter that much more effective. Well, that is a fantastic place to end. Jason Innes, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Definitely. Thank you, Chris, for the time. And thanks to the listeners for joining in. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Education Insider. We know that you have a lot of choices of content. and appreciate that you spend some time with us. Please take a few more seconds and share this podcast, share this episode, Write us a review, follow us on your favorite podcast platform. It'll help us continue to offer up content and allow more folks to find us. And please do join us next time for more conversation with the people who know education best.